Greetings, I'm Tyler, and this is The Socialized Recluse. My guest this time is Wallace Strobey, an award-winning journalist and the author of nine novels, including his latest, Heaven's a Lie, which was just called, quote, a pure hit of adrenaline by author Harlan Coben on the Today Show. Um, As for my opinion of the book, it is absolutely brilliant, and you have to read it. Um, On that, I do have a request for this episode, which is that if you do choose to listen, that you read Heaven's a Lie first, and then come back and listen. Um, we, we do discuss, you know, all parts of the book. We do discuss spoilers. But most importantly, I want you to be able to experience Heaven's a Lie the way that I did, which was no preconceived notions, no spoilers, and just going in with a set of fresh eyes. The work really deserves that. So please, read the book first, listen second. Uh, This week's field recording and ambiance includes the ubiquitous barking dogs, which will be here from now until the end of time. Perhaps also a dreaming one in there somewhere. But a new one, which was my neighbor driving his riding lawnmower past our house on his way downtown to get gas for his riding lawnmower. Which, which is a thing, I guess. Um, There you have it. If you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise at me, my email is TWW at parentheticalrecluse.com, and you can listen to earlier episodes of this show at parentheticalrecluse.com slash TSRpod. And with uh, spoiler warnings firmly in place, and my hope that you have read the book before you listen, here's my chat with Wallace. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling fine. I've just been uh, talking too much lately. Oh, I got you. How is everything going with the book? I mean, I... Uh, fine. You know, it's been it's been busy a couple of weeks. Uh, got a nice bump on the Today Show last week. Sweet. Um, so uh, yeah, good so far, and I appreciate your uh, wanting to talk to me. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I I just I I you know you saw the tweet. I finished Heaven's a Lie, and I absolutely loved yeah. it. So that's I mean, great. Um. So, I mean, I, I always kind of try and focus these interviews on, like, what can I learn from somebody? And so I actually want to start what, at what would really be the end here. And when I know you've you finished Heaven's Lie, obviously, a while ago. Um, but I was just curious, like, what do you do when you're done with a novel? I mean, that feels, I know with my experience, it's such a void. Uh, you know, how do you, you fill it? Do you take a breather? Do you have other things that you were working on during that you turned to? It is a void because generally when you're finishing it, you're putting in a lot of effort and you're spending a lot of time on it because you're trying to get it done by deadline or trying to get revisions right. done by deadline. Yeah. So it becomes your life. There's no other aspect to it. You know, mm-hmm. there's no other aspect to your life. Uh, so then when it's done and then you get to the point where you can make no changes then it, there's a sense of loss. It's just, it's, it's, it's like postpartum, you know? Yeah. Um, I always feel it, you know, this is, uh, heaven's alive is my ninth book. Uh, I have felt it with all of them and I don't know that there's a solution to it. I doubt that there is. I think it's just a natural part of the process. Yeah. I mean, so do you, you know, do you take, do you take time off before you start your next thing or do you kind of just dive into another thing? The problem I have is I tend to want to dive into something. Okay. 
but almost always what I dive into immediately doesn't go anywhere. Oh, okay. So I have like, all my books have like three or four false starts um, in before I, I began the book, which became a book that actually came out. Okay. So I think after uh, Heaven's a Lie was done, done, I had already been working on it. I'd already been fooling around with something. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I pursued that because I wanted to keep the momentum going. And uh, it didn't work out. And uh, I abandoned probably 170 pages of it. Oh, wow. Okay. It just wasn't, it just didn't feel right. You know, I, I was anxious to try and get back, get back into the process of writing. So I was just grabbing whatever was, you know, floating by and trying to write that. And it's not the way it worked out. Well, how do you know, though, when it actually is, you know, working? I mean, it, you know, when you've actually, you've actually started and it's not a false start. Uh, to see how far you get. And yeah. Usually, like I, you know, when I wake up in the morning, like in those moments of consciousness, those early moments of consciousness without clutter, uh, I know. I know if it's not working, I know. Yeah. You know? And then with what I'd been working on, I tried a couple different approaches. Okay. And uh, it just wasn't clicking with me, and there was a character issue that I just couldn't resolve. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it just. And the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to write something that was more like Heaven's a Lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and so I, I just, I abandoned it, you know, and I haven't, I've never gone back to it. I've never taken anything from it. I've never gone back to it and tried to rework it. It just, you know, it served its purpose, which was to get my mind going in a certain direction. To get you moving into the direction you needed to go for the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, then I had another couple small false starts. So you know, I don't think it's that unusual. Yeah. It bothers me when it happens because I've had, because the circumstances have had such a long lag between books. How long was it between the, the um, book? My previous one came out in 2018. Okay. This one is 2021. So it wasn't a quite, you know, it wasn't a full three years, but uh, it was close it, to it, change. You tend to go like what, every other year or something like that. Is that Yeah. uh, You know, when I wrote those four Chris Stone novels, uh, those were written boom, 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 four years in a row. So I had a book out every four years. Okay. Uh, After that, I was dealing with some family issues with an elderly, my elderly mom. um, And eventually had to bring, she was in Florida. Mm -hmm. Uh, I eventually had to bring her up to New Jersey and find a place for her to live. And then she had various medical issues and she, she passed. And you know, there was all kinds of, that was my life for a while, you know, the writing kind of started to lag. Yeah, um, I, I was, I was going to ask, I was actually going to be my next going into Heaven's a Lie. And I, I do want to actually say here is that if people haven't, who are listening, have not read Heaven's a Lie, I'd recommend doing so before listening to this, because we will probably talk about spoilers. But that was going to be my, my question to you was, was, was the caretaker aspect based on personal experience and clearly it was yes it was but i also have to give credit to my editor at mulholland uh, okay. josh kendall <clears throat> when we were i had started writing heaven's a lie i don't even know if i started writing it but i had the idea and i met with them and all of my characters tend to be kind of alienated and that alienation is part of the story it's part of their story so it becomes part of the books uh and I was starting off Heaven's Alive sort of the same way, you know, with Joette's character right. uh, being pretty alienated, not being unanchored. Mm-hmm. And Josh suggested, um, you know, he said, no, why don't you give her some connections? He says, why don't you, why don't you make her a caregiver? 
and he at that point had no idea really of you know what I had been dealing with. Uh, that was just his instincts. So he's, he, that was the suggestion then, and I said, yeah. And automatically I saw it. I said, yeah, I can, I can do that. I have, you know, I have something I can bring to that, you know, that that'll give it a breath of life, you know. Um, yeah. I mean... And so that's, so that's, that's how that all happened. It was, you know, it was, it was just an element of something that I knew, but it was something that also fit in with the, with the story, with the fictional story. Yeah, I so, mean, the, the details really, you know, it really resonated for me me as well i mean the last eight years were pretty much doing that not i mean my mother's you know fine now but it was a similar situation just uh, it just sort of being thrown into that just that uncontrolled you don't know you it's you have to learn to try and control the uncontrollable but you know you can't yeah and there's always you know as as the situation progresses you end up in a position of winning the battles but losing the war you know yeah yeah it's not it's you know it's it doesn't get better no you know sometimes it's sometimes it doesn't get worse but it never gets better right so um yeah i think you know an enormous amount of people millions of people deal with that situation um and you know for me those that was very tough to write though those scenes were very tough to write because they had they brought back something that i had compartmentalized because i had to to you know i had to make the decisions every day and Right. Um, so, you know, I had to compartmentalize that. So it was tough bringing it out again to write. And uh, it was tough to write. It was tough to go back and rewrite. And when I was editing, man, I didn't even want to go to that chapter again. You know, I, just, mm-hmm. I didn't even. It, Wait, what, it, just, it just still felt so real to me. Which chapter was it that, is it that you were talking about? Uh, just the first, the first couple of visits. Okay. Home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, you know, of course I took. You know, I took allowances with all kinds of, you know, and that, that's sure. Um, you know, and to, to fit the story, you know, I made changes, but um, that was it. Yeah, so that was it. Was tough to write. It was tough to go back to. I remember going back to, uh, you know, going over the manuscript and just thinking, man, I don't even want to read this again. You know, yeah, that part. Uh, so in the end, maybe does it did it get it out of my head and onto paper? Yeah, I mean, uh, I it, guess it did. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was something I talked about with um with Allison was that for me writing is a form of exorcism. You know, you 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 have that idea or that experience and you just get it out. And you put it onto paper and that's how you process it. Yeah, it becomes like a thing rather than just this amorphous, you know, darkness. Right, absolutely. Um, You're not holding it in your head anymore. You've yeah. yeah, you've had a chance to work with it and stuff. So, I, I mean, one of the things that I thought you really captured well was that it was, you know, it was like the, 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 the crux of crime fiction of, you know, people in their last tether trying to assert control over this awful, mm-hmm. uncontrollable situation. Um, and then succumbing to that temptation of a magic bullet. In this case, it was a suitcase of money. Um, since I know that you are an avid student of pulp history and crime fiction history, I was wondering if you could talk about that the case of money as sort of that classic MacGuffin, like how it how it you know has moved through history and what uses of it kind of inspired you here. It is a very classic sort of idea, which is what I wanted to do. I, I very specifically wanted to do that. Um, I could name ten movies and or books okay that have that idea at, at its center yeah but they're all they're all unique um 
you know, you can, it's No Country for Old Men. It's yep. a simple plan. It's uh, a movie called Too Late for Tears from the 40s. It's, it's, you know, it's any number of things. So I specifically wanted to play with that, uh, that concept, but I wanted to go deeper on the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was a choice. You know, people will, you know, rag on me maybe for taking what was, you know, a very classical structure, not, not a classical structure, but a classical idea. Well, no, but I mean, it, I, it is what I wanted to do. It's not that I, it's not that I fell into it. Well, I always enjoy those stories though, that take the classic tropes and, you know, just kind of do use it as a springboard for their own thing and for their own experiences and, and bring it about in different ways. And I think you really did that with, with this one. Um, well, there are there are no new ideas, really. Especially no, in crime no. fiction. You know how many how many novels come out every day? Yeah. You know, um, so the, the, you could drive yourself crazy, and there's always a period when you finish a book before it comes out where you're really worried that another similar book with the same idea is going to come out in the meantime. Right. Yeah. You know, and but there's nothing you can do about that. Right. And so it becomes, you know, you either got to stop thinking about it where you do have to stop thinking about it because at a certain point there's nothing you can do. You just sort of have to have confidence in, in the way you approached it and the, the uh, approach you took. And then, you know, did you do your due diligence on the characters? You know, I think did, that... did you elevate them from being, you know, genre stereotypes into something else? Was there a moment though, in the writing where the story really came alive for you? I don't know about that, but I can tell you that I abandoned it twice. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That's a lot more interesting than what I was asking. Um, there were points where I just couldn't see where it was going. Okay. I wasn't sure, you know, how much of the action was going to be driven by Joette. Um, you know, a lot of the plot had to sort of like revolve around her without her directly affecting. And then it's like, if you're trying to stay with the main character and they're not leading the action, if they're just passive, then that doesn't feel right either. And I also didn't know how far she was going to go, you know, mm-hmm. how far she was going to go as a character. Uh, though I, all that, and also just the issue of it was very hard to concentrate, you know, last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were just periods of time where I didn't, I just didn't think it was going anywhere. I thought it was, you know... I was worried it was too redundant of stuff I'd done in the past. I was worried it was too simple a story. Although I do have a thing. I'm sitting at my desk now, and I have a, uh index card uh, taped to the wall that says uh, simple story, complex characters. And that's always been my, you know, my thing. I'm not, I've never been big on plot. I love people that plot really well. Yeah. I can't do it. It's almost like a mathematical thing, and I can't. Yeah, yeah, I get you. My mind doesn't work that way creatively. So you're the either the. I wish it would sometimes. You're the you know take two people and put them in a situation and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and if I can set that, if the sooner I can set that up, the more comfortable I am. Okay. So, you know, with Heaven's a Lie, I set it up in the first couple sentences. Something's happening, so what happens next? I like to just hit it out of the gate. Okay. Uh, And um, you know, and set up the characters, know who the characters are, know what the situation is, and then just, you know, set it in motion and yeah. see where it goes. Um, so at this point, I'm going to ask you just to go ahead and read a passage from the book. And with, you know, I had talked before that this would be probably one of the the more difficult passages for you to write, which then we'll use to, you know, 
further on the conversation here. Uh, so if you could just kind of uh, set the stage for what you're going to read from and then go ahead and read and take as much time as you want. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to read something short. And okay. uh, it's it's not from one of those uh, nursing home scenes. OK. So, OK. Um, Joette Harper, who's a young widow living alone and managing night manager at a motel, uh, sees a car accident, rescues a driver. Uh, the car goes up in flames. And the last thing she sees in the in the car is a bag full of cash, which she takes and does not tell the authorities when they show up. Um, so she's uh, dealing with this, this moment of temporary insanity she had and trying to realize what she can do next to get out of it. Does she want to get out of it? You know, is this something that caused a change in her or is this something that's been waiting to come out all along? So this is just a scene um, you know she's she's lonely she's she's uh, she's still mourning her husband uh, she's not even 40 years old yet and she, she's beset on all on all sides uh, and feeling unanchored in the world and and being forced to uh, uh, do things and make decisions and so this is just a this is just the scene of uh, uh, Joette waking up in her uh, in her trailer she dreams about Troy, wakes feeling anxious and unsettled. She pushes off the comforter, tries to remember the details of the dream, but they're gone. It's over hot in the trailer, the air dry, 9 a.m. She needs to get moving, but she doesn't want to get out of bed. That's what you get for going to sleep half drunk, she thinks. Sunlight pours through the bedroom window. She flashes back to a summer morning at their house in Point Pleasant, a month or so after they were married. Troy sleeping beside her, snoring softly. She'd been propped up on an elbow watching him, the fall of light across his face and hair, remembered thinking, how did I get so lucky? Grief is a sea, a counselor had told her at one of the group meetings she'd gone to just after his death. Sometimes it was flat and calm. Other days, a sudden wave could drag you under without warning. So many times, she thought she was on her way to feeling better, only to have something bring her... <clears throat> only to have something bring her crashing down again. The triggers were always there, waiting. A song, a photo, a phrase she used. She had to learn to resist the impulse to cling to things that reminded her of him. She knew why she did it, because feeling bad was better than not feeling anything at all. So what was, the, what was difficult about that one for you? About, the, uh, about writing just, that one? Um, just, you know, trying to... Um, the you know the sense of we're trying to articulate a sense of loss. Yeah. Um, and how sometimes you know memories, good memories, can turn around and have the opposite effect because what you're feeling is the loss of that thing. Mm -hmm. And that that can um, you know you think you have your life planned out. You think things are you know you've planned as much as you could you don't expect things to come out of come out of the blue and and knock you down right. uh things that were through no fault of your own and uh you know those things happen those things happen um not long after my mom passed uh, within a year my brother who i was very close to passed oh, jesus i'm sorry uh, and um so that was you know i 
that was a lot to process and I don't even know that I have processed all that. Yeah, you know? Yeah, I don't know if um, you can. It's yeah. Wow. So it was it was like a year after your mom died, your brother did too. Yeah, almost to a week. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Almost to a week. Um and so you know, I was the thing is you don't wanna you don't want to use that kind of stuff as material, you know, but it's, yeah. it's the feeling of it. If you're going to write about loss, if you're going to have to, you know, if that's what's going on with the character, then you sort of need to evoke that in a way that makes sense and is accurate. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, you, you don't go there and, you know, when you visit somebody in the hospital, you don't go there and, you know, and bury your head in your hands and cry. You, you, you know, you put up a brave front and you do what you need to be doing. You make the decisions. And you, um, you know, sometimes you have to make enormous decisions in a very small amount of time. Yeah. And uh, you have to do it, and no one else is going to do it. And so, well, yeah, like you said, you, you do adopt a little bit of a persona to help you get through it. Uh, and you, you want to be asking the right questions, and you want to be doing the right thing. So. And you're you're always questioning yourself. I remember always questioning myself throughout, yeah, throughout all of it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that absolutely. whole self-doubt, I mean, you know... I, being a writer on top of all of that, your your self doubt's built into the whole thing. But and, yeah, and, and then it's just oh yeah, it just amplified a million times. I mean, it's just yeah. But at the same time, it's you know it gives you a sense of purpose because you're doing sure. something that's very very important. You know, sure, it's very very important, and um, and it's not just you. So you got to get out of your own head. You got to put right. yourself you know uh, in the background and make these decisions, and. Um, so when that period of time, when that experience is over, it's always weird, you know. Yeah, it's that's it's it, it's a it's another void, in in, in yeah. many senses of the word. Yeah. Yeah, because you're so. you're you're processing sort of the end of that purpose and then the end of a a, a person or you know something else. Yeah, that's always. Yeah. Yeah, that's rough, man. But I thought that passage was was really a perfect encapsulation of that i mean it was a it was a great breather if, if, i mean if you can use that term with it from sort of the relentless pace of the book it just sort of stepped back just a little bit i thought it was really really well yeah, timed in there yeah i probably won i probably did that like on a second run okay i was probably you know i, <laughs> I had done actually a draft of the book and it was only forty five thousand words oh okay which is which is it's not even a novel yeah and uh, I thought, oh, you know, because I was just writing it like, you know, here's the situation trying to get, you know, trying to keep the whole thing moving. And I'm always concerned about pace, but sometimes you can you can you can pace too fast. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You, and I've read books like that, which, you know, you blast through them. But when you're done reading them, it's like, oh, what was that about? You know? Right. You're trying to catch up to catch up with yeah. it the whole time. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember those characters or anything like that. And so, you know, it's like uh, I went back and and tried to fill things out like that. Yeah. Without doing it, without doing it too much, you know. I could have had a whole scene where she's in a meeting, in a grief, you know, meeting. Yeah. Um, but that would have been. I didn't been, need yeah. to do that. Yeah. You know, I, if I could do it in a couple of paragraphs, just her memory, then that's better for my purposes. And uh, do you outline? I don't generally. I okay. never did. Uh, on the last couple of books, I've had to while I was doing it. Okay. Just to keep the information organized. Yeah. I, um, I've always been terrible at it. Um, I, I, I've kind of found them to be useful in 
revisions. You know, it's like you get through, yeah. you get through a first draft of something, then you can kind of make an outline, so then you can go back and pick it apart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you know, I spent I spent 23 years in newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm comfortable when I can get something to the point where I can pretend it's somebody else's work and I'm the editor. Gotcha. You know. So that compartmentalization. Yeah, which in this case is good because then I can go, I can go in there and take myself out of it, take my ego out of it, take all my little predilections and idiosyncrasies out of it, and look at it as an editor would. That sounds and, like uh, like something I, um, uh, George Saunders said that he he looks at things, tries to look at things every day with a, a meter that he can kind of push into the positive. He wants them to end up that way and kind of dissociate himself from the day before. In revision. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know if it always. I can't speak for him. I, you know, yeah. I don't know if it's always that easy to do. Uh, it's in my experience, but, it's not. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Uh, you know, it does give you a feeling of. Uh, you know, having some control over the over the material. Yeah. Which which you need. I mean, you know, the, the, a lot of times the loss of control is very good too. Yeah. You know, because you're going in different places, but, the, you know, it can't just be this like you took a deck of cards and threw it up in the air either. You know? Was there a point in writing Heavens Alive where you lost control in a good way? Uh, yeah, let me think. I'm sure there was. Um, I think when I started getting into uh, Travis's situation, mm -hmm. and then I realized, like, from one thing that happens early on, a crime that he commits very early in the book, like, in the, you know, the first time we see him, that that was going to have a ripple effect. Mm-hmm which I hadn't even thought about. And then I thought, you know, in this whole criminal community, it would have a ripple effect. And it would begin, it would be the beginning of his downfall because of what he'd done. And what he had done, he had done impulsively because of what Joette had done. And, uh, you know, this guy who's been you know, this legendary badass and, and people are starting to see weakness in him and they're starting to try and take advantage of him. And then he has to respond to that. And then all of it is, is because of this, uh, thing that was set in motion by Joette. Yeah. And so then I thought, well, you know, he's got a legitimate gripe, you know, mm -hmm. she stole his money. That was his money. She stole his money. And she, uh, she made him do all these things he would not normally have done. And so once I got sort of in the driver's seat with Travis and realized how his world was going to change as a result of this, then that got, that got almost to be fun because then it's like, okay, who the who are the other gangs? You know, what are they? What are they? What's their approach? What's the relationship to Travis? Uh, how are they going to respond to him? You know, did, uh, once they start nibbling away at his, you know, his business. Did some of the the other gang stuff start showing up in revisions and other drafts after that forty five thousand word draft? Uh, no, okay. I think they were. I think that I, I think the basic idea that there was a gang that he was dealing with, a gang of Dominicans, mm -hmm. um, was there. Okay. But then what, what would be the ripple effect of that through, through other, you know, other gangs was, uh, was what struck me. And then that got, that kind of got to be good because you can, you know, that, and, and it's sort of like you're writing kind of a traditional crime thing. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that can be a lot of fun to play with, even though, you know, terrible things are going on, but, right. um, you know, you can sort of play with that, sort of classical crime thing there's one sequence that that stood out to me and, and again we're going to be talking spoilers so and um that's the boston sequence 
um, that was the one that that was the one that pulled me out briefly. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure if it was because, you know, I lived in Boston for 10 years or if I had, mm-hmm. you know, I had just finished, um, oh, Cullen and Murphy's Whitey Bulger book. Okay. Yeah. And so it really stood out to me. And I'm just I'm can you walk me through um, your approach to including that sequence? Yeah, uh, I was I was concerned that that was um, too much of a shift. Okay. And then it was going to confuse people. Um, You know why this thing which had been centered in such a small piece of geography would would all of a sudden show up there. Mm -hmm. And there, there were a couple of reasons why I did it. First of all, I had been thinking about, I'd had a conversation with somebody uh, who told me at a party, who told me that her podiatrist had um, told her a story where his girlfriend, fiance, had become involved with a well-known New Jersey mobster who's going back decades. Okay. And um, that he, this guy kind of stole him you know, stole her from him, the podiatrist. Uh, and then later, years later, she was terminally ill and tried to wanted to get in touch with him again. And it, it just stuck me, struck me that, um, you know, that somebody could be in this relationship where that was an actual love relationship, and and one of the people would be a really bad criminal, you know. Mm-hmm. And that just struck me. I also wanted, so I wanted to play around them with that idea. And I also wanted to establish the fact that uh, every man in her life lets her down mm-hmm. in one way or another. Uh, even the ones that, you know, say they have their reasons for helping her. Uh, nobody saves her. You know, she has a friend who's a cop, but even he's not, you know, he doesn't understand what's going on. And he can't help her much anyway. And she right. doesn't go to him. She doesn't want him to solve her problems. Because mm-hmm. uh, she also knows she's putting him in danger by if she brings him into it. Okay. So, sorry, barking dogs. That's okay. And I also wanted, you know, her mom to have a little bit of background as to why, uh, oh. you know, why Joette was the way she was. And uh, I did, I, I did some research. I didn't go up there, but um, I did some extensive uh, Google mapping on uh, Winter Hill. And I had read one of the Bulger books too, the one by T.J. English called Where the Bodies Were Buried, which mm-hmm. I, which really struck me because it's not so much about Bulger, it's about the environment that he came out of. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, how what went on before that and what went on after that. And what really struck me about that whole thing is, um, you know, that, that sort of Boston organized crime was very tightly knit in the community you know it wasn't like they were out doing these you know really ambitious uh you know schemes or anything it was like this neighborhood this neighborhood thing that we were all preying on each other mm-hmm. so that sort of close-knit neighborhood organized crime thing was kind of interesting for me to write about too also it had to be you know um you got to go somewhere before you can come back you know right so i wanted that situation to be you know that was Joette removing herself from the situation and then realizing that, no, she can't depend on anybody and she can't keep running. So she's got to go back. Got to go back and deal with it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I too ran away to Boston and had to come back. So so I, I want to circle back again, but to the first question is that, you know, about taking a breather and stuff. You told me when we spoke the first time that 
you've been revisiting some of the crime fiction of the late 80s and 90s. Um, yes. So, uh, so what what are you reading, and uh, yeah, and and what are you looking for when you're doing this reread? Well, you know, the, specifically uh, the the ones that I've been rereading, like almost back to back, is uh, uh, like late '70s, early '80s, Elmore Leonard. Okay. And uh, late '80s, early '90s, Lawrence Block. Mm-hmm. Now, those are I read those books when I was in my 20s. And blasted right through him, you know, because without a second thought as to how he was constructing it or anything. Um, and then recently I've been, because I always have problems with structure, you know, okay. in my books. Um, sometimes I, I end up flailing away and, you know, I, I get myself into tight corners. <laughs> so there's always an issue with structure and, and how you're going to present information and how that, you know, you, how you don't want that to affect the narrative too much but you want to be able to dole out information. And both those writers do that effortlessly. Yeah. And so revisiting those books, I was able to see exactly where they did what they did, when they shifted perspective, and what were the themes that are actually running through those books, even if I couldn't pick them up, pick that up at the time that I read them. And, and the, the theme doesn't even present itself until you're looking at them as, you know, more than one, as a totality. And with Elmore Leonard, and I went back and read some of his uh, earlier Western stuff, too. Um, his theme that's running through almost all of his books is is the um, um, underestimated man, mm-hmm. you know, a, a guy who's who's a, who's a who's a citizen for the most part, although he's written about a couple of cops as well and uh gets involved with something and finds out he has uh muscle that he never had you know hidden muscles what my editor called it uh, who's able to finally extract himself from the situation you know, this really bad situation and a good example of that was the first Elmer Leonard book I ever read called a cat chaser okay. which was, was very much like that uh, and so you know reading those books stick and swag and uh, Unknown Man 87 and uh, 52 Pickup, which is a perfect example of it. That, that theme is in all those books. Also, those books were his Detroit books, and they're always they're a lot grittier. Once once he started writing about Florida, those books became a lot more comic. And then when uh, after Get Shorty, or especially the movie Get Shorty, then then the books were a lot more comic. Yeah, you know, there were there were romps, but there's. There's humor in those books in the 70s, but they're also very serious. They end up very serious, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a point like three quarters of the way through where something happens and there's a shift, and all of a sudden the stakes are much higher. And then then you ride that out through the rest of the book. So going back and reading those, I was I, I was really admiring the work, you know. I always loved all those books. You know, he was he's one of my heroes. I wrote his obituary for the uh-huh. paper I used to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is it about Elmore Leonard's work that that makes him one of your heroes? It was like uh, he wrote the he well everybody talks about his ten rules of writing. I will say he rewrote the rules of writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, you know it was, it was like a breath of fresh air. It was you know characters everybody had their own humanity. Um, you know that sometimes what they were talking about wasn't strictly to do with the plot. Uh, they always kind of felt like somebody might you might know or might bump into at some point. Um, and you, you know, read them very fast. They're all structured very well. 
uh, he gets away with stuff that I think most writers wouldn't get away with. Um, in Swag, for instance, which is a great book, he follows these two armed robbers. And then in the very like last quarter of the book, he introduces a cop who's not who had not previously been in the book at all. And he's on their tail. And I don't think any other writer could have pulled that off. I would never go near it, you know. Uh, it's, it would just be too much at the uh, at the last moment, you know, to sort of rework the story. But he's trying to find a way for the story to end. So I understand that, too. Okay. Uh, and he makes it work. So it's like the rules, uh, as far as breaking the rules, you know, there are no rules. And if you can make it work, you can you can make it work. And there's nobody can say, uh, you know, well, you broke the rule here. If it works, if it worked, nobody cares. Right. All that matters is if it works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I asked this question of Allison, and I, my wife is a sixth grade teacher, and she wanted wants me to ask, what would you tell kids about writing? Well, for sixth grade, I mean, there's not much you can tell them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, you know, read. Yeah. That's all you can tell anybody. You yeah, know, read everything. People ask me, you know, of all ages, uh, whatever. And uh, I say, you know, read a lot and write a lot, which is what Stephen King always says. And that's the only thing. That's the only way to do it. Read a lot and write a lot. Yeah, there are no shortcuts. I I read it. Yeah, I read everything. And long before I knew I wanted to be a writer, I read, I was a compulsive reader. I read everything, you know. Mm -hmm. As a kid, I read horror. I read science fiction. I read, you know, mainstream books. Um, That was before there was a lot of YA then. Yeah. um, and um, and then later, you know, in my teens, I think I started to gravitate towards crime fiction. Um, mainly write, you know, reading a lot of like uh, paperback action stuff, you know, with the pulps, with the pulps of the 70s. Right. US. And so all that stuff, you know, and I, I look back on that and I can't believe I wasted time on them. But I, I started keeping a book in 1981 okay. of uh, or 1982 of every book I read. All right. So I have like a black and white composition pad with, uh, you know, listed every, you know, marked off every year, June of that year. And then a listing of all the books I read. And as I refinish a book, I will, you know, put it in that journal. And I go back and I look at it and there's things I have no memory of whatsoever. <laughs> like not even the slightest. And then there's other stuff like movie tie-ins and things like that. I can't believe I Oh, yeah, that was... but even reading the, uh, you know, even reading stuff that's not good, you're gonna learn a lot. You can probably learn more once you're in the process from reading something that doesn't work. Yeah, because you have something to react against. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess nearing my last question here, but um, what do you consider to be a good writing day? A good writing day. Yeah. Um, I used to. You mean in terms of how much you produce, or in terms just, of? Just, I mean, general... j- just for you. I mean, at the end of the day, do you actually, you know, when you feel like you've, do you, you know, feel like you accomplished? I can count, you know, on one hand, like the number of those good days I've had. But just sort, well, of, you came out of it and it felt like, oh, this was a pretty good one. Uh, well, you know, I. I used to write strictly at night. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, and I would start fairly late. I would start at like 10 or maybe later than that. And I would work till two or three. And then there were times that, um, you know, I was getting close to the end of a book and I would work all night long. 
and I would go to bed as the sun was coming up. And, you know, there's a feeling, and I miss that because I can't seem to do it mentally anymore. I can't, I'm just not sharp enough at 2 a.m. as I used to be. Um, and so there were nights that, you know, I was working on a book and, you know, you get on this tear and you write 20 pages or something and then the sun's coming out and then you go to bed and that's a great feeling, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because then you feel like you're going to bed, uh, um, to quote a Sam Peckinpah movie, you know, into your house justified. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you feel like, oh yeah, this you're doing it. On the days that I don't get much done, I feel terrible. Oh yeah, yeah. And if a period of time goes by where I haven't written in like a week for whatever reason, I feel really bad. Yeah. Um, you know, really, really bad. I know Allison said the same thing when she's between books. Yeah, she yeah, told really yeah, bad. Yeah, she told me um, that you know it it just becomes like breathing, and you know writing becomes like breathing. It's an essential thing, and I know it's the same way for me. Is that if I don't do it, it's you don't want to be around me. You know, yeah, because then you start to feel, but you start to feel bad about not doing it. You start to feel bad about feeling bad. Well, I, and um, there, there's yeah. a, I'll, I'll share the quote with you. I shared it with 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 Allison that Leonard Cohen said, which was that he writes to regain his self-respect, and so that, you know the day does not go down in debt. Yes, that's yeah. Well, Sam Peckinpah said the same. Thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Sam Peckinpah and Leonard Cohen. Yeah. I mean, there we go. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. All right, so this has been um, fantastic. But before we go, um, where can people find you or connect with you? Well, you know, www.wallstroby.com. Um, I'm actually been directing people more to the Mulholland book site because they've been doing, they've been keeping that more up to date. Okay. Um, but yeah, wallstroby.com is a place to start, I guess. Okay. It's not great. It's not. You know, it's, it's it's an ancient design, but um, you know, it's everybody's only a couple of keystrokes away from being found anyway. So yeah, and, and and it has your um your interview with Stephen King on it, which was fantastic. Oh yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. That's actually I got a lot out of that that interview, uh, which came to me years later. And he ended up using a lot of that stuff in uh, when he did his book on writing. Yeah, I remember reading that after after I read your interview. It said that you know he used yeah. a lot of that stuff. That's really cool. It was a great interview. So yeah, I don't know that he used it. I think it got him thinking. Got him thinking. Yeah, maybe in ways that he hadn't done before. And it's funny because I did. I interviewed him twice. I did another interview with him like a year later, mm -hmm. uh, just about movies and stuff. But uh, you know, I, I remember doing that interview and not thinking that it was going so well. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, he seemed a little short a couple times, and he had not he had stopped doing interviews for a long time. And I had written to uh, I'd written to his agent at the time, said I wanted to do the interview, and then he forwarded that to King's secretary in Maine, and she wrote me a nice letter. It said Steve's stepping out of the public eye for a while, uh, but he appreciates the reviews you've written because I, I reviewed almost all his books for the paper I worked for at the mm -hmm. time. And so in the meantime, I did a, I had done some pieces for Writer's Digest magazine as a freelancer. Mm -hmm. And I did an interview with the writer Clive Barker, the British yep. uh, author, who, whose work I loved. And that interview came out really good. And it was very much about craft, mm -hmm. you know, how he did certain things. Uh, so, like, when that came out, I rewrote I wrote another letter to King's secretary now that I had her name, you know. Yep and address, his office address. 
And uh, I said, you know, you may, may remember me from, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, this is the kind of thing I'd like to do with Steve. And I sent him a copy of the uh, Clive Barker thing. And then the secretary called me like a day later and said, Steve says yes. Sweet. So, um, you know, we set it up. And, uh, you know, the one it was probably like an hour, a little over an hour. He kept trying to, like, end it. <laughs> And I, and I kept, like, doing another question. And, I, I you know, I had my, I, well, you know what it's like. I mean, I had my stuff down before that interview, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I had my questions ready, and uh, it was not the kind of questions that he was used to getting. I wasn't asking him what scared him or, you know. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so it seemed like it was, he seemed short on some stuff. Uh, he kept trying to get off the phone. I think he was eating lunch at one point while we were talking. And uh, I thought, ooh, you know, it's kind of, it wasn't really friendly. Yeah. And then, uh, but when I played the back, when I played back the tape, I had some great stuff on there. Yeah. And I was so concerned about, you know, the, what my next question was going to be. And I was so concerned about avoiding awkward silences mm -hmm. that I wasn't, you know, listening to everything he was saying. But fortunately, I had it on tape. Well, they, they were great interviews. I, it was really cool to read them and, you know, yeah. I got a lot out of them. That's, oh, that's, that's great to hear. It's good to know it's still. Yeah. It's yeah. Been printed a bunch of times. Yeah. No, but it, but yeah, it's on your, it's on your website. So it's definitely worth a read. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's it. So, you know, thanks for doing this. It's been great no, chatting, no with, chatting with you. And I really love the book. And like I, I said before, is that, you know, this Heaven's Alive may have been the first book of yours I have read, but it will not be the last. And you have a lifetime oh. fan right here. So. Okay, great. We'll have to talk about uh, Sergio Leone at some point. Yes, I am. I am. I am all for doing a show where we just talk about Once Upon a Time in the West or <laughs> Sergio Leone. So, well, Wallace, thanks again, man. This has been great. Thank you, man. All right. Once again, many thanks to Wallace for taking the time to chat with me and for writing such a truly awesome book. I mean, Heaven's a Lie. It's it's excellent. So. Um, if you haven't read it and are listening to me right now, well, you didn't listen to me in the introduction, but that's okay. You know, sorry you won't get to read the book with fresh eyes, but fresh ears, whatever. Just go read it. It's excellent. Be sure to check out all of Wallace's other work. You can find him online at wallacestroby.com and on Twitter at wallacestroby. If you'd like to shout, scream, swear, say hi, or otherwise at me, my email is TWW at parentheticalrecluse.com, and you can listen to earlier episodes of this show at parentheticalrecluse.com slash TSRpod. And as for my neighbor and his riding lawnmower, I think he made it home. I don't know. Because the, the, the yard's mode, so I guess he made it home. I don't know if he ran out of gas or not, but there you have it. So, see you next time. Thank you.